Good morning, everybody. Uh, so it is fitting this morning that we are talking about our great God because I have nothing of myself to give. I know you were praying for me last week. Pray for me again this week. Um, the Lord always humbles me at the right time, so I can't hear this morning, and if I stop to blow my nose, uh, welcome to my week. Um, so last week, we looked at man before God, so the walk and life of a godly man, that of fleeing from sin and unrighteousness and pursuing righteousness, um, the idea of persevering in the faith because of the eternal life that we have. And so kind of transitioning a little bit, we, we, we stopped in the middle of that section, which is 11 through 16. Um, we alluded to what we're going to cover this morning, but this morning as we cover God before man, I want you to think in the context of Paul writing to Timothy, and in the difficulties of ministry, and the difficulties of the uh, Christian life for those in his church and for all the readers and for all of us, it may seem daunting, and it does seem daunting, when we only think about our own inadequacies, or we think about how often we fail, or we think about how short we fall, and our inability to be obedient and to do what God has called us to do when we lose sight of who our God is. So that's what I want us to do this morning, is to refocus our sight on our God and look away from ourselves it's like trying to appreciate the majesty of mountains through binoculars. Have we ever done this? Like you can you, you can look at the you can look at details on the mountain, but the only way you can appreciate mountains is to put the binoculars down, put your phone down. No no iPhone 85 that will ever be created can ever take in the majesty of a mountain range. That is like trying to see our God through the lens of ourselves. We just have to put the phone down and just take it in. Because our eyes can't bring in everything that is beautiful about a mountain. Imagine an infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent God. And so as we, <clears throat> as we said last week, um, if you just take the commands of the Christian life, flee sin, pursue righteousness on their own, they become this, this heavy burden. Man, how can I do that? I keep failing at doing that. I haven't done it well my entire Christian life. What's going to be different now? We're so incapable of ourselves, and we know we're guaranteed to fall short. But the reminder of Paul is you don't fight in your own strength. You fight out of your calling. You fight because one has called you, and the one who called you has given you eternal life through his son, by the power of his spirit. That is how you fight. And so therefore, we keep fighting. We keep fighting out of this eternal life that is ours right now through faith. How? Earlier on in Hebrews 12, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because he ran for the joy set before him, which is our salvation. And so we run in his strength. And so, saints, this morning, I don't want you to lose sight of the greatness, the awesome power and perfect sufficiency of our great God. That's what we're going to do this morning. He is glorious, and hope we get a, a minor glimpse of that today. And the other thing I want us to do is so often, like Paul does, we need to stop. We need to stop with our emphasis on, 
on what we do. I haven't been fleeing sin like I should. I haven't been pursuing righteousness like I should. And Paul just stops and praises God because that's all he can do. We don't do it often enough. And so we're going to do that this morning and just think about him for, true, for who he truly is. So I want us to just take a morning. Hopefully this is not the last morning. It's not the last morning th- this week that you just stop and think about the glory of God. Think about the good news of the gospel. Think about the assurance that you have. And if you don't have that assurance, think about how bankrupt you are in and of yourself. I want you to be able to rest and worship as you fight. So uh, what exemplifies this, uh, there's a great hymn which I wish I found last week, so I'm going to share it with you this week. Um, John S.B. Moselle. The, uh, like a lot of hymns in history, the first line is the title, Fight the Good Fight with All Your Might. This is directly out of our passage, but I love how he contrasts the Christian fight with what the Christian possesses, what we do coming out of who we are. Here's what he says, fight the good fight with all your might. Christ is your strength and Christ your right. Lay hold of life and it shall be your joy and crown eternally. Run the straight race through, God good, through God's good grace. Lift up your eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path and Christ the prize. Cast care aside, lean on your guide. His boundless mercy will provide. Lean and the trusting soul shall prove Christ is its life and Christ its love. Faint not nor fear, his arms are near. He changes not, and you are dear. Only believe and you will see that Christ is Lord eternally. I love how that beautifully uh, pictures our text. So in 1 Timothy, opening your Bibles to chapter 6, I'm going to reread that entire section, uh, 11 through 16. Because I want to tie together last week's and this week's, do a little bit of recap. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. And the Father, forgive my words, because nothing I will ever say will give you the honor and glory you deserve. Nothing that will ever leave our lips will do you justice, and yet you find pleasure when we speak your name. 
when we proclaim your excellencies, when when we give you the glory and blessed praise that you deserve. Lord, help your people this morning to love you, to revere you, to find their pleasure in you, because you are great, you are awesome, you are mighty, you are wonderful, you are glorious, you are excellent, you are praiseworthy, you are lovely, you are beautiful. We could go on and on and on with the superlatives but you are also merciful and full of grace. So merciful that you would send your son for wretched sinners like us. That we would even see a glimpse of your glory. That you would preserve a bride for him and prepare her to be one day presented to him that we may see you in all your glory. Lord, may we look forward to that day. May we not be wicked and faithless servants May we be dutiful and joyful servants because we serve a good master. The master who has left us in charge and given us responsibility until he returns and when he returns, we celebrate and we celebrate forever. Lord, may we be a people of joy because we have all of eternity to be thankful for and we will have all of eternity to celebrate when we are united to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so I want to do by way of uh, recap a little bit, um, verses 12 through 15. So uh, Timothy's good confession that he made at his baptism, most likely, is before in the presence of the church. But it's not just in the presence of the church. It's not just for them. It stems from this divine call. The God who called him, it is now in that God's presence that Paul is charging him, that Paul is commanding him, that Paul is urging him to continue in the faith. Look to your God, because you are always before him. We live Imago Dei. This God, the Father, is the giver of all life. The son who made the good confession that he is the king of kings and lord of lords before Pilate, he gave you new life. It is in their presence that you minister. And that same Christ who made the confession before Pilate, who laid down his life for you, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again that you would have life in him, who secured eternal life for you, he's coming again. It is him you serve. And so when the, when the opponents come at you, when the false teachers, those who cause division within the church, when they would confront you, look to your king. Look to your God. And here is where we will pick up. The middle of verse 14 where he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he, the Father, will display at the proper time. So, saints, our call is to remain faithful just like Timothy. 
We're not, to know the, we're not to know the time. We're not to be obsessed with the time. Anyone who is obsessed or thinks they know when Jesus is returning, they are distracted and they are a waste of your time. Because whether he comes back now or 10 years from now or 1,000 years from now, our call is still the same. We are to be faithful. We are to look for and, and anticipate his return. And no better place describes this than in Matthew 24. So I want you to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. In the Olivet Discourse and the last night of Jesus' ministry, he's speaking prophetically about things that will happen soon and things that will happen far off. And he speaks of his own return. He tells many parables. We'll, we'll just look at one this morning. But look at the language and the way that, that Jesus expresses his own return. And so if we're going to think about Christ, if we're going to think about how we should live in him right now, we should probably look at his words. When we think about what it means that Christ will return and how he should find us when he returns, we might want to go to the source. Chapter 24, verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man, which was earlier in verses 29 through 31. But considering, er, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. How foolish is it when someone's like, yeah, I've figured the formula out when Jesus will return. The angels don't know. The incarnate Son of God doesn't know, but you know. Let's move on. For, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, kind of sounds like today, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Mankind has always gotten so too comfortable in their luxuries. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, picking up in verse, I was supposed to stop there, but I'm going to keep reading, I guess. Um, who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus does not take lightly his return, and he does not take lightly those whose drunken revelry, like the rest of the world, looks nothing like a faithful servant. So he gives a parable here. Let's continue to read verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven 
will be like ten virgins who take their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the, this chorus of coughing going in here, you were my people. For, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no, no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That hasn't changed. What Jesus says there is the same to Timothy and his congregation in Ephesus and the church in Galatia and Corinth and Rome and every other church throughout the ages. You don't know the day or the hour. I think we've gotten too comfortable. When you read the preaching of the apostles in the early church and the church fathers, there was this urgency that Christ could return at any moment. We've lost that. I rarely hear pastors preach to be ready to keep your lamps trimmed because he could return at any moment. So I want to ask you, are you ready to see the bridegroom? If Jesus were to come now, or now, or on your drive home, how would he find you? How would he find the state of your heart and the state of your life? Does it serve him or serve yourself? Are your lamps trimmed? Have you bought your oil? Are you ready? At a moment's notice, are you a faithful servant? Or are you like the foolish virgins who are too worried about partying than to be prepared for the master of the feast to return? Paul says to Timothy, we looked at this last week, I want to look at it again, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, just quickly. This is how Paul finished his life. This is how he wants Timothy to finish. This is how we want to finish. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all those who loved his appearing. This is the saints. This is what is to mark us. Those who love the coming of Christ, we praise the God who took on flesh, and we love that he will appear again. And we look forward to it because we are his But we're not always, are we? I was thinking this week, uh, it's kind of like the mother who says, clean your room before your, your, your father gets home. What does that child do? Well, I know dad gets home at five. So what time do we clean the room if we know dad gets home at five? 4.59. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But if your mom says, your dad's going to be home any minute, when do you clean your room? That minute. 
even if it takes them another nine hours to get home, you're not gonna take the chance that dad comes home, if you've got a good dad, he will make sure your room is clean and you do what your mother tells you. That is why our Savior told us, I could come at any moment. If we knew the day or the hour, we're lazy. We're procrastinators, we would put it off. We are to get our house in order now and keep our house in order because the master will come home. So how much more so with our bridegroom? knowing he could return at any moment. So that's where Paul leaves us. He's excited about the appearing of Christ. And Paul, uh, as I mentioned earlier in intercessory prayer, breaks out often in doxology when he thinks about his Savior. He does it actually in chapter 1. In chapter 1, when he thinks about the incarnation of Christ and what that means for him, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Doxology, to him, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He breaks out into doxology. Again, he breaks out into doxology in chapter three. When he thinks about the, the gospel that holds up the pillar and buttress of truth in the church, Verse 16 of chapter 3, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. This doxology, he was manifest in the flesh. Doxology just means praise. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And now he does it again. When he tells Timothy about ministry in chapter 6, and he talks about Jesus Christ, the Lord, who will come at the proper time, he just breaks out in this, in this extended hymn of doxology. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. So now let's look at that doxology. And you're going to have to bear with me because i got to blow my nose. Sorry. For your sake, I turn my microphone off. <laughs> You're welcome. <coughs> Don't make me laugh. All right, uh, verse 15. Verse 15b begins with he. Paul just stops. He, our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this God. As you think about ministry, let's look to the God who's called you into ministry. Let's talk about our Savior who's coming back soon. Timothy, if you ever think you're going to lose heart, let's see if this motivates you. He does the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 is this great hymn of, of Christology. Um, so there's a lot of parallel passages. You'll see the references in your notes. Uh, I'm going to be moving through a lot uh, because this is good for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
That is the, the uh, deep Christology of the humanity and deity of Christ. But here, in our smaller, more condensed doxology, he focuses on, on the divine nature and a, um, a theological word, the aseity of Christ. Meaning he is, he is, he is truly God. He is self-sufficient. Nothing uh, affects him. He depends on no one or no thing. He in and of himself stands. And so when Paul thinks about ministry and he wants to encourage his young protege, he tells him to keep his eye on the prize. He is the one who called you. He is the one you serve. And so as we get through here, we're going to look at uh, four characteristics of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, really in his deity. He is incomparable. He is invincible, he is inaccessible, and he is invisible. Uh, Number one, he's incomparable. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. No one compares to that. What other God can say that? Um, We could go many places for this. We go to the end of Job, but I want to go to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is this repetitive list of all the great things God has done and which no other God can ever do or will ever do. We're just going to look at the first nine verses. The rest of it is a recounting of Israel's history. I just want you to look and think about the God of creation. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, church, say with me, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. What other God can say that? He is the only blessed and only sovereign. We bless him because he is the blessed one. There are many of these benedictions in the Psalms. I just want to look at Psalm 72, 18 through 19. Psalm 72, 18 and 19, the very last two verses. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. He's the only blessed one. He's the only one who deserves praise and honor. He's the only sovereign. There is only one true ruler. The the sovereign is the, the potentate, the one who presides. He presides over all things in all places. He is independent of all other authorities. He answers to no one. He is rightfully ruler over all creation. He rules over all times, all peoples, all places, all circumstances. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. There is no random molecule. There is not even a hair on your head that is outside of his command. And he's the only one. 
and there's no one like him. And so the next two phrases explain this and exemplify this. He's the only sovereign. What type of sovereign? Who's that sovereign? He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What does that mean? He's the king, capital K, of kings, lowercase k. He's the capital L Lord of lowercase l lords. What does that mean? Any king, any lord, any ruler, any master. He is their king. He is their lord. He is their ruler. He is their master. They bow down to him. Even if everyone on earth bows down to them, they will one day bow down to him. But many are delusional. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar is a great example. Let's turn to Jan- Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, like most evil kings in um, Babylon, uh, loved their wickedness. But he loved the title king of kings. And so he has a dream, and um, the Lord kind of feeds his ego and then brings him down in that. So uh, Daniel 2, verse 37 King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when hearing the interpretation of his dream from, from Daniel, he hears words I'm sure he likes. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And he goes on and on and uh, all the things that God of heaven has, has given you. Okay, he, he likes this. Uh, it doesn't, la- doesn't go too well for Nebuchadnezzar. He gets, he gets humbled again and again. But let's fast forward to chapter 4. How does this so-called king of kings end his life? The final words attributed to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34 of chapter 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. Oh, by the way, if you think too highly of yourself, God's going to turn, your cra- turn you crazy and you're going to eat grass. Um, But now that his reason returns to him, and I bless the Most High and praise and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. He's still bragging here, but it doesn't last long. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, the great Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Says a man who is prideful five seconds earlier. They will try. Many kings will raise themselves up. Many kings will stand in their own pride and their own understanding. Many kings will stand up tall in their own strength, but only one will stand. We know the end of the story. Look at Revelation 17, 14. Revelation 17, 14. They, the great prostitute, the beast, all the kings of earth, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he 
is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. So that's our king. So what does that mean, brothers and sisters? What does that mean for the church? Those who are chosen and precious in his sight. Do you know that your Savior is king now? Do you live like he's Lord right now? Do you live like we know the end of the story? Any king or president or pope or anyone who claims lordship on themselves, they will all be defeated. They will all fall down before his face. But do we live like that? Do we live like he's on the throne right now? Do we live like Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and not just kind of Lord, Lord over all? How many of us slump around like the world has already defeated us? How many of us slug our way through life like, woe is me, I'm so pitiful, I keep failing? Do you belong to the king? Has he ever failed? Will he ever fail you? You ever notice how calm a little girl is when she's holding her father's hand? She could walk through the darkest alley. She's not scared. She holds on a little tighter, but she knows her dad is big and strong, and he will protect her. Daddy will beat up whoever comes in in a way. Your daddy may be strong, but he's not the king of heaven. Do we walk like the king of heaven has us in his hand? Or how much do, do kids fear bullies when their big brother's around? I'm not worried about you. My big brother's right behind me. Our big brother is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has gone before us in glory. Are we scared of little bullies on earth? The bullies we've created in our minds and in our hearts? We are. It's stupid, but we are. Saints, if our brother rules on the throne of glory and he has promised us eternal life in him and he has promised that no one can snatch us out of our hand, we should walk like that little girl in her father's hand, that little boy who walks with his, with his brother. But we're creatures of sight. We forget because we can't see. That's why we need, we need faith. And we must stir on our faith. And this is what Paul is seeking to do with Timothy. Your God is incomparable. Your Savior is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We don't think about this because we don't have kings. But if you lived in a day when there was a king, when the king spoke, it was law. The authority of the king went out and it was accomplished. The king says, give them land, they had it. The king said, save their life, they had it. The king said, take their life, it was gone. What do you think happened when the king of kings promises you'll have land? Promises you'll have an inheritance. Promises I will give you life. Promises if you are unfaithful, I will take your life. How sure do you think the authority of his words are? As compared to the regular kings and lords of earth. 
Number two, our King, our God is incomparable. He is also invincible. Who alone has immortality? He is the only one who possesses deathlessness. And yes, that is a word and it is a thing. Immortality means without death. Deathlessness. If you want to not die, go to the one who cannot die. That's what's being said here. If you want to drink from rivers of living water, he must call you to drink. If you want to live forever, he must bestow that immortality on you because he is the fountain of deathlessness. He is its source. He is where it comes from. He is where it dwells. He is what it is. But how many people try to sidestep Christ by their own good works? How many people think that, yeah, I can have eternal life. Um, God, will accept, God will accept me according to my standards, not his. How foolish is that? How many people have you talked to? Maybe you're that person who says, yeah, of course, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. You arrogant son of a... <laughs> Seriously? If those words have ever come out of your mouth, shame on you. You think you can go through the gates of eternity without, with, by sidestepping the eternal one? You think your standard of righteousness is better than his? He alone has immortality. That's why there's only one way, one truth, and one life. No one would ever expect to come into Florida without crossing the border or stepping on the beach. No one ever come in to expect to get into Disney World without going through the gate. Or anyone who comes into your house who does not get invited in is a burglar. But so many people think that they can enter eternity without going through the eternal one. It makes no sense. You can't pass over death apart from the deathless one. You have no hope for life beyond death unless you go through the one who has conquered death and has done it for you. This is what Paul is saying. He alone is immortal. He alone is without death. Okay, so all that being said, what does that mean for us? When I say us, this is a family conversation. If you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you're trying to figure this, this Christian thing out, listen closely. What does that mean for brothers and sisters in Christ? What does that mean to us who are united in him? It means we are now immortal. Means without death, not eternal. We're not without beginning or end. We are now immortal. We cannot die. Because Jesus Christ has died in our place and he has given us his immortality. He alone is the source of immortality. Eternal life only comes from the eternal one. I'll give you two passages. Let's flip quickly over to 2 Timothy. Should be probably on the same page as open in your Bible. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Notice what Paul's doing here before we go any further. It is the gospel. It is the good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal immortal one, takes on flesh and in his flesh dies. 
so that he may rise again. And if you rise again with him, even if you suffer for a little while, he suffered so you might have to suffer. But if you suffer like him, you will rise like him. And if you rise like him from that resurrection, Jesus will never die again and neither will you. And so that's what Paul's saying here. If he saved us, verse 9, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which he has now been manifested through the appearing, this theme keeps coming up, of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. When Jesus walked on earth, he is walking, saying immortality's here. Eternal life is in me. That is why the gospel is such good news, because it means death to death in the death of Christ. One more, just like it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. <clears throat> I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get around the door. What did Jesus tell us in John 10? Anyone who tries to go any other way but the door, he's a thief and a robber. You can't climb over the wall. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. He's talking about those who are in Christ. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Saints, do you remember that in Christ, death has no victory? Death holds no power over you. His power has been taken from it. The empty grave is our proof. The reigning Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is our proof. He goes on, verse 56, the sting of sin, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I didn't include verse 58, but it's applicable too. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice how these two things come together. You're alive in Christ. You're immortal in him. So keep working. And don't lose heart. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Back to 1 Timothy. That is why Paul says in verse 12, take hold of eternal life. You now have immortality in Christ. Let that put some wind in your sails as you continue on in ministry. Number three, he is inaccessible. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Light is one of the most common pictures in the scriptures of the uniqueness of our God. It emphasizes purity, life, wisdom. And whenever light shines, this pure light shines, it expels all darkness. This light is so bright and so pure that no one could ever look upon it with their natural eyes. Imagine if someone woke you up in pure darkness, three in the morning, not a light on anywhere, and shines a floodlight in your eyes. Would you be able to take that in? Absolutely not. 
Imagine the full blinding glory of the almighty God shining on you in your darkness. You couldn't even crack your eyes a millimeter. That is why this light is unapproachable. You have better luck staring directly at the sun through a magnifying glass. Moses could not approach the ground where the burning bush was. It was holy. Israel couldn't step one foot upon Sinai because God was dwelling there. Paul, on the road to Damascus, saw this light and it knocked him to the ground. He was blind and couldn't eat for three days. Sinners have no such hope to approach, approach this blinding light, this holy fire. So what then? What can we do? What hope do we have? Our God, who is creator, in his first creation, was the first thing he created? Let there be light. Heavens and the earth, the first thing is light. It shows us that our God breaks out in the darkness. This is how he begins to create. And our Savior, when he came, how did he come? Let's turn to John 1. The answer to the darkness of our wickedness. We know the beginning of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and will not, and will never overcome it. He is light. He dwells in light. He, just like the source of immortality, he's the source of light. What does that light mean? John chapter 8, verse 12. <clears throat> And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. You have, you possess this light. Not only does this light illuminate your, your eyes so that you can approach him and see him, but it casts out and dispels all other darkness that would have you for its own. It is the confirmation that the God who created first out of nothing from darkness to light has taken you as a new creation from darkness to light. And he has recreated in you after the image of Christ. And this is why Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you people, you're a holy nation, royal priesthood. Verse 2, uh, yeah, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, why did he do all this? How did he do all this? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why does God do that? So that we, wretched sinners who are born in darkness and walk in darkness, say, I am in the light. Not because I have the light within me, because the one who is unapproachable, the one who, who, who has, has given me light, has chosen me. And he uses me to proclaim his excellencies. Okay, so let's, let's back up a little bit. How can we approach? How does this happen? Turn to 2 Corinthians. 
I wish I could read all of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to read a good part. Um, but I want you to see here, because we've talked about Moses already. Now you may know the story. I mean, Moses stands on Sinai, Moses in Exodus 33, I think. Moses says, God, I'd like to see your face. God says, no one can see me and live. But if you're lucky, I'll show you my back. And God walks his glory by Moses. And Moses, after seeing the back of God, and don't, don't try to make sense of that. Um, God's just using little words for our little brains. But Moses is so overcome and so transformed by looking at the back of God that he must wear a veil over his face because he would blind everyone else. Now let's pick up there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Have you ever seen um, Jews try to do backflips not to see Christ in the Old Testament? They got to try really hard. Oh, it's a whole montage of Ben Shapiro doing it yesterday. Um, like everything he could to say, no, that's not Christ, that's not Christ, that's not the Messiah, that's not the Messiah. I, I, I immediately thought of this. For this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How do we approach that unapproachable light? We turn to the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, think about that, in Christ, this unapproachable light that Israel couldn't see off of the, that Israel couldn't look upon off of the reflection of Moses' face, you now see in Christ unveiled. That's amazing. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What does sanctification look like? One step closer to glory. Praise God. One step closer to glory. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And it is what God has done. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is something that God has done. He's shown light into our hearts. Verse 17 of chapter 4. So when you think about difficulty in life, you think about difficulty in, in, in ministry, and um, we talked earlier about Timothy's ailments and the, the uh, struggles, whatever we go through, we keep this in mind. Number one, you have been given the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The, the, the veil has been removed. So anything, play on words here, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christ gives us the eyes of faith to see what carnal men cannot see. Even though we do not see him. Brings us to point number four. He is invisible. You said earlier, God is spirit. Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman. 
He's, he's spirit. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. And you can only do that in faith. And so when, when Paul see, says here that whom no one has ever seen or can see, he's talking about with, with, with our carnal eyes, no one has ever, no human being alive has ever looked upon the glory of God. Ever. Even though we have been brought near even though we can see him in our mind's eye, even though we can see him in faith, we have not beheld him yet. But the reality is, we can't comprehend him. We can't. It still holds. No one will see me directly and live. But once you die, you will. So what do we do now while we're here? 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9. Peter reminds us that our faith, the Christian life, is not based on, have I seen this God? The fool who says, God, show me yourself and I'll believe. That's not faith. Here's what Peter says when he writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Is that you? Do you rejoice that even though you have not seen him with your eyes, you know him? And one day you will see him face to face. And what is that joy? That joy inexpressible, that filled with glory. Because one day you will attain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It doesn't mean that you are not saved now if you're in Christ. It means that you have been saved in your justification. You are being saved in your sanctification. But the outcome, all of it, the, the great consummation of our faith is you will be saved completely, delivered from this wicked world system in our glorification. Though we can't see him with natural eyes, we are to look to him now. Now we see him in faith. One day we will see him with new eyes. This veil that has been lifted one degree of glory to another, we get closer and closer to seeing him. But one day our eyes will be accustomed to the light because all there will be will be light. He will be the sun. There will be no need for sun. There will be no night. This is the promise that we hear in Revelation. Although now he is unapproachable, but through Christ you can approach, and one day you will see Christ face to face. So that, these four characteristics, the incomparable, invincible, inaccessible, invisible God. Now here's the true doxology. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Honor and eternal dominion. All praises in all places for all time. Remember, we looked at our previous couple sections. They gave honor to true widows. You give honor to elders who rule well. Why? Because they honor the Lord. We honor those who honor the Lord. Because to him is due all awe, all respect, all worship, all praise. Because he has all honor and all dominion. His reign is unparalleled because it's over all things for all times. So now that we've described him in our last couple moments together, what do we do? What do we do with all these great flowery things we just said? Number one, we behold him. 
do you just stop and look to him? Do you ever just sit in awesome wonder like, this is God. This God has made himself known to me. This God has saved me and drawn me. Do you look forward to eternal life because he's there? Or just because you don't like the other option and you're scared to go to hell? Do you behold him? Because if you seek him, you will find him. You can know him. You can know Christ, which is eternal life. So what do we do with this? Just stop. When you're reading your Bible sometimes, when you're struggling sometimes, when you're thankful, just stop and praise the Lord. We need to do that more often. Break out in impromptu doxology. I don't care if people think you're crazy. I hope they ask you why you would. So what else do we do? We worship him until he appears. Because when he appears, that's all we're going to do. And we're not going to get tired of it. That's what we're going to do forever. Uh, Last couple passages are going to be in the book of Revelation. I want to give you a picture. If you think maybe we're uh, playing this up a little bit. Or making too big a deal of uh, worship. Let me tell you what's going on right now. And what will be going on forever. Revelation chapter 4. Begin uh, verse 8. So the most glorious creatures in glory, the four living creatures, each with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say. The most glorious creatures in all of glory don't get tired of saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they go on, all the elders cast down their crowns. Verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering in the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor, honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Chapter 7. I keep going, but this will be the last one. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders, we think amen means it's over. The amens never stop in glory. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, You know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Saints, if you have washed your robe in the blood of the lamb, 
if you have been cleansed by his righteousness, and if you go to him before he returns, verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall never hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Does that sound good? Amen. That's why we talk about our God, because that's who he is, that's what he will do, and that's what he has promised to you if you are in him. So lastly, we behold him, we worship him until, we appear, until he appears. Lastly, if you know him, rest in him as you fight. Yes, you can do both. Because you fight in his strength. He is coming soon. Let's pray. Holy, 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 are you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What can we say that is not being said around your throne right now? Heavenly Father, to you be all glory, dominion, and honor, and power which you have bestowed on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we worship and serve, our King and our Lord. May he be praised in our speech, in our actions, in our hearts, and with our voices. May we lay our crowns down before him, because he is worthy of all honor and eternal dominion. And in his name we pray, amen.